Welcome to Virtuoso, your story and sound Shangri-La. Entertaining stories that enhance your well-beingness and well-being. Please welcome your host, Trevor Joran. Welcome, friends, family, and early listeners. I want to start off with a big thank you. This is the last episode of the season, and I am glad that we've had such a great run. In this episode, I am talking about the philosophy of the late, great, 18th-century Immanuel Kant. In sound, I dive into one of Disney's most incredible and bold moves, the Fantasia Project. Following that, I... Talk about bringing scientific thought to a broader audience with one of my college buds, pretty much my roommate from our university days, Shibble. Here's what you can expect in this episode. We'll have a quick mindful moment to bring us together. Today's theme is taking a break when it's necessary. At six minutes, together we'll wonder what life would be like without our rose-colored glasses of space, time, and numbers. How do we know that these are actually part of the world? Next, I'll talk a little about the wine I am sipping in this episode, bringing sensibility of Burgundy to the northern coasts of California with Litteri. At 14 and a half minutes, we'll look at an iconic pairing of classical music, innovative sound techniques, and animations coming together with Walt's groundbreaking Fantasia. Following that, we'll spin the globe and learn about a new location, This time it's the furthest reaches of our country, only 50 miles off the coast of Asia. Separating the Arctic and the Pacific is the state of Alaska. At 25 minutes, I'll interview Shibble about our university days, inspiring thinkers, appreciating beauty, and ways to weave science into our daily lives. Note, if you only want to listen to the interview for Friends of Shibble, you can play that segment alone by going to the excerpt episode which features just our conversation. And lastly, we have our concluding segment with the pennies and pound notes. Enjoy the show. In today's mindful moment, the theme is about taking a break. As people in the modern world, we often have the problems of being overworked. We also have quite short attention spans and can experience agitation in our minds. I think it's important that we reframe patience and restlessness here. It's not about necessarily developing a better defense system. Rather, it's about a gentle process of identifying when we might be too tightly wound and then letting go. So breathe in through the nose and out through the mouth. As you breathe out through the mouth, just gently close your eyes. Breathe in and out. I know that after the development of this season in particular, I am looking forward to the relaxed time when I get to just sit back, take things in, 
You know, it's been from the moment I wake up all through the day till I go to sleep, working on these for about a month now. It's a lot of time, and as a result, I'm working out less, my relationship gets less attention, my other writing projects get pushed to the side, everything comes to a slow, so I can accomplish the goal of putting these out on time. But boy, I tell you, it is not ideal. It's better to have a lighter schedule for longer periods of time. So, for season two, we all hopefully learn from our mistakes, and when I'm putting the next one together, I'll be working about a half hour a day for nine months. But that sounds a lot less stressful than 12 hour days. Now, breathe in and out. Don't worry if the mind is thinking, just let the mind ponder and recognize that the mind wanders and that it has happened. You've been taken away. Just gently return to where you are here now with me and the show. One more time, let's breathe in and out. All right, now that we're all together, let's bring the energy up and get the show started. In today's story segment, I'm talking about The Critique of Pure Reason by Immanuel Kant. Now, the way that I came across this book is actually interesting because it's not something that I would, you know, usually be attracted to. However, I googled what the most influential books of all time were, glanced at the top ten, and I saw this. It just, you know, piqued my interest. And I'll be honest. This was a challenging one, probably the most challenging in the whole season. So, hey, we got to save the best for last, right? Tough one to wrap my head around what he's trying to say here, but I did my best to kind of summarize the clever concept and meaningful message and condense it in a way that you can understand it. So let's see how it goes. In short summary, The Critique of Pure Reason is a book by the 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant where he makes his first critique of the faculty of reason. He goes on to later make more critiques. This is the first, and it is notoriously difficult to get through. I felt good about that. It made me feel like I wasn't necessarily so, you know, dumb. Because <laughs> it's challenging work. His goal with the book, which was renowned for being hard to read, and I can attest to that, was to see if metaphysics was possible. Metaphysics being one of the four main branches of philosophy primarily concerned with the nature of reality, including things like the mind, substance, and actuality. It actually comes from the Greek words that mean behind the natural. It seeks to answer profound questions such as, what is there? And what's that like? In order to do so, he builds upon the foundation of other prominent philosophers. Most philosophers during this time 
were trying to understand how humans acquire knowledge. So he looked at those who believe knowledge comes from the sensory experiences, such as seeing a giraffe and then knowing there's such thing as a giraffe. By observing rain falling and knowing it's raining, this is an example of empirical knowledge. On the other side of the coin, he also looks to the works of rationalist philosophers who believe that truth is in fact deduced from intellect rather than the senses. These thinkers believe the only thing you can truly feel confident about is the stuff that you can figure out, like 3 times 3 equals 9. So the meaningful message and clever concept here, Kant wonders for all of us, what would life be like without our rose-colored glasses? Of space, time, numbers, how do we know that these are actually part of the world? Or the idea that was brought up by the guys at the Philosophy Tube when they talk about what would the world of Pokemon be like if you never became a trainer? What if your starter kit didn't work and you just had to go out and walk into the world and experience it directly rather than trying to catch Pokemon and battle with them? What if you weren't interested in that? So to figure it out, he came up with this theory. Kant divided the world into two. One side with our experience of the world, and the other, the world as it is, independent of our observations. He argues the way that we experience requires things like space, time, and numbers to be understood. And therefore, concepts of space, time, and numbers come in our mind in the beginning. Also, he denies that we can cognize things as they may truly be. He says that truth is something that is universal and necessary, or, in other words, can't be false. It is true by definition, like, a desk is a desk, or 7 times 3 is 21. But knowledge gained through the senses, he argues, may possibly encounter errors of judgment. In other words, we see the world through rose-colored glasses, or in his own words, he says that we see things as mere representations and not as things are in themselves. So we see the world as we are. This is the African proverb. We see the world as we are, not as it is. Right? Through our rose-colored glasses, space, time, and numbers being the rosy tints. Throughout my journey, I diverted my thoughts to his theories on well-being. Because honestly, I found that these were just more interesting and applicable personally and uh, grabbed my attention. So I found that his thoughts say essentially that there is no connection outside of the unification given by a supreme God between virtue and happiness. I found that to be interesting. Kant may have believed that doing what is right is often the opposite of doing what would make you happy. And this ability to forego happiness, crave and instead act righteously, is what Kant deems virtue. He says that the human will is affected, but not determined by our desires, and that happiness is a result of being virtuous. Kant says that if one can act in the right principles, which are the result of an education of moral law and reason, then this person will avoid the greatest of human punishment, a low view of oneself. A virtuous person is one who adopts good principles freely and then acts. So Kant's work, although another sleeper hit like we described in the last episode, 
has endured in its impact on Western philosophy. Certain features of obtaining knowledge are built into you through your rosy glasses, and so obtained knowledge is as much as within you as it is the world around you. Thank you. In today's Culinary Corner, I am focusing on some real gems from far up the California coast. I am sipping on a 2015 Pinot from Litteri, and what comes to mind is elegance. Nuanced, bright red fruits that mesh well with savory notes. What's special about this picture is that the proprietor Ted Lemon took all he learned from what he experienced in Burgundy, France, and brought that heightened appreciation to California. See, in Burgundy, the origin since the first century of Pinot Noir grapes that I am drinking today, there is a great appreciation for the terroir, or the sense and soul of land. And what Ted does well is select areas, often single vineyards with challenging but rewarding growing conditions, and coax the grapes to show off their best, allowing a bright expression and a true sense of place. They even go so far as to prep their own biodynamic materials for organic farming practices. And when Roberta and I drove up to this little farm, we felt a sense of home. The wines here that are produced are elegant, crisp, refreshing, beautiful, dynamic, bright, and truly worth trying. So if you ever get the chance to see a literary bottle, I recommend you pick it up and give it a taste. In today's sound segment, I'm at least a little bit more comfortable. <laughs> Boy, that last story segment was challenging to get through, to say the least. But here we are in my comfort zone, in my passion zone, talking about Walt Disney and the project of Fantasia. In short summary, 1940, Disney took an entirely new dimension on. The groundbreaking experience combined classical music with animations. Although it got off to a rough start, Fantasia over the years has grown into acclaim and is now ranked as the 58th American film in the American Film Institute. 58th greatest American film. This is only the third film released by Disney and it sure was a fresh one. Over 1,000 artists and technicians came together to create a film which features more than 500 animated characters. Leopold Stokowski conducted the Philadelphia Orchestra as they played live music to wonder-inducing whimsical stories. As I was doing research, I found that Disney actually elaborated on the concept of silly symphonies here. See, at the time, Mickey Mouse was declining in popularity, 
and the studio needed to revamp his image. They set about creating a more elaborate design for the whimsical animation to music. Walt met the conductor Leopold in town, and he agreed to conduct for free, with the New York agent stating that Leopold was inspired by the project. Really serious in his offer to do the music for nothing, he had some very interesting ideas on instrument coloring, which would be perfect for an animation medium. And Disney, jazzed at the opportunity, wrote back saying that he felt the union of Stokowski and his music together with the best of our medium would be the means of a success and should lead to a whole new style of motion picture presentation. And I agree. It led down the road to all symphony work that accompanies the beautiful Planet Earth documentaries, even to the reboot of this at the turn of the century. His brilliance brought vitality to an already accomplished piece, such as Toccata and Fugue by Bach, The Nutcracker Suite by Tchaikovsky, Rite of Spring by Stravinsky, The Pastoral Symphony by Beethoven, Ave Maria by Schubert, among many others, including a jazzy jam session led by the horn section of the symphony. The meaningful message and clever concept here is about the visual brilliance that was brought to the sounds of the most celebrated orchestral pieces ever conceived. You can see visual history of the Earth's beginnings in the form of ballet, mythical Greco-Roman worlds with cupids, fauns, and centaurs dancing around the god of wine. Music paints the transition of seasons and illustrates the dance of plum fairies and waltzing flowers. Each segment was designed to tell a particular story. For example, the Rite of Spring was intended to show the first mammals through the triumphs of humans discovering fire. In order to avoid controversy from creationists, who would definitely take an issue with the evolution and human connection, the studio recruited a whole team of biologists, paleontologists, and astronomers, including Edwin Hubble. They studied comets, observed alligators, and more just to keep the integrity of the piece. Imagine that much work for each of the eight segments. It's truly a gem at matching story and sound. Also, for all you audiophiles out there, interestingly, Fantasia is the first commercial film to be shown using the pioneering concept of stereophonic sound. Stereo essentially allows for the user to experience sound as they would naturally hear things. For example, a car going by would be picked up in the right headphone and then into the left as the car dashes off the screen. This provides a multi-dimensional sound experience. And to quote from Disney on using experimental sound recording techniques, which used over 30 mics placed around the musicians, he said, we wanted to reproduce such a beautiful masterpieces so that the audience would feel as though they were standing at the podium with Stokowski. After all is said and done, almost three million feet of sound film was used in the production of Fantasia. So the enlightened excerpt here is how Disney wanted to step beyond the whimsical, often slapstick nature of the silly symphonies and produce something where sheer fantasy unfolds, he said. Action controlled by a musical pattern has great charm in the realm of unreality. Oh, beautiful words. I'd also like to note the difference that Waltz had in mind for this project. He said, 
In our ordinary stuff, our music is always under action. But on this, we're supposed to be picturing this music, not the music fitting our story. The brilliant blemish or fabulous flaw here in the whole project, while in concept it sounded quite incredible, the cost was actually too prohibitive to turn a profit. Held in 13 different theaters, the cost of the production of outfitting each theater to the Fantasound equipment was the downfall of the business plan. Also, World War II cut off distribution into Europe, canceling a good portion of the vision for manifesting. However, like I've mentioned a few times in this season, the payoff is in the long run. Over the years, Disney kept showing the project love, and each rewrite or re-edit or re-release proved to be good for the bottom line. And the show actually ranks as the 23rd highest grossing film of all time. So, not bad when you're willing to wait it out. In an attempt to blend animation and classical music, this is one of the boldest moves made by Disney. It turned out to be a masterpiece, treasured for generations. Today, in the global segment, I closed my eyes, put my hand on the globe, gave it a good spin, and landed in Alaska, the largest and most sparse of the United States. Separating the Pacific and the Arctic Oceans, this exclave is just 50 miles or so across the Bering Strait from Asia, which is considered to be the entry point for the settlement of North America via the land bridge 20,000 years ago. It turns out the Russians at one point owned most of Alaska, in fact, but were prompted to sell at about two cents per acre in 1867 because it made little sense to maintain this distant area for them. Just about 20 years later, thousands of miners began coming to the nearby Yukon in search of gold. While in 1959 it became officially the 49th state, the indigenous population who speak over 24 languages wield considerable political power. What really comes to mind for me when I think of Alaska is the Iditarod dog sled race. This annual long distance race covers a trail that runs nearly 1,000 miles from Anchorage through the interior of the Rainy Pass and then along the Bering Sea, finally ending in western Alaska. Racers mush with teams of 14 dogs through whiteout blizzards and below zero temps as they cross the tundra, forest, mountain passes, and rivers. To quote from the poet William Miller, many mushers will gather to see the fresh faces of people from so many places. Hundreds of dogs will gather, willing to run, in any Alaska weather. In tether and harness they'll run, and the dogs think this is all such great fun. Through the mountains and long mighty rivers, just the thought makes most of mankind shiver. <laughs> and of course, one cannot write about Alaska without mentioning the mountains. Snowboarding was my very first true love in life, 
and always Alaska was the homeland. I went to school instead in Utah because the higher education opportunities presented themselves, but hey, at least I had some snowboard teammates from the farthest reaches of the states. Alaska, the last frontier, is still on the list for the vast and snowy mountains call any powder hound. With over 650 inches per year, and in some years, including the turn of the century, they got 28 meters of snow. Amazing. Just mind-blowing. The amount of snow in the Alaskan mountains is five times what you can expect in places like Idaho. The downside? It's wet and it's heavy because it's so close to the ocean. But with some skills and fat skis or a board, you can stay above it and have the time of your life. Boy, sure makes me want to go there right now. Aloha! Today I have one of my oldest and dearest friends. His name is Shibble, and he was my dorm mate during my university times. Welcome to the show, Shibble. Thank you very much for having me, Trevor. I am excited about having you on because you've always inspired me. There is a consistent search for knowledge that runs through every vein in your body. And also, you are just a pleasure to be around. I remember some of our days in college when we would be kicking back after class and just shooting the breeze, maybe playing FIFA with the guys in the hall. Or (laughs) (laughs) I I remember some of our rowdier days um, when I think there was uh, a chicken that we captured and brought up to our dorm. And Put in the I middle. Would, I would the... like to correct you there. Um, I think it, <laughs> that was a singular effort on on your part. I don't think there was anyone else involved with capturing the chicken. That was just you in the zone. Well, it definitely scared the, the girls. It certainly did. And then you chucked it in the in the boys' bathroom, where we um, got a good <laughs> few hours of entertainment out of that. So uh, Gosh, you've been inspiring would... as well in, in in many different ways. I can say. That was not the only thing we threw during our college days. I remember we would play frisbee and and try our best to have an accurate throw <laughs> down the hallway, but regardless, it would always slam into somebody's door and make a huge ruckus, and they'd come out and be like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, by the end of it, I think um, I think they didn't even come out with too much uh, in too much rage because they... Uh, sort of came to expect it by that point but yeah we used to yes i, I guess roll down shopping trolleys and skateboards in in uh in the hallway so the whole the whole uh, um college freshman shebang i think we had it nailed down i think we had it nailed down some of my greatest memories are with you and you know it's been a six to seven eight year journey now with you and we've stayed in touch and had some fascinating conversations throughout and I, I treasure your friendship. In fact, by my maths, um, now it's been 
nine years if if he can nine believe years. it which is wow. just no kidding mad Yep, absolutely. And you you have quite an interesting story. So you grew up in a variety of countries, born in Pakistan and moved to the United Kingdom. And I think that has uh, that blessed you tremendously with depth. You know, there's yeah, a great there's depth. A well of, of there's a well of something for sure. There's a well of something. <laughs> but um, yeah, I think um, I appreciate your mentioning of uh, my uh, leanings or tendencies towards science, because that really is something which has been a very important sort of motivator in my life and perhaps even the primary guiding light that I've been, that I've been chasing. Uh, the love for learning and, and a quest for, no, for knowledge that has certainly stayed with me and in fact, dare I say, grows, grows stronger by the year. So it's, it's nice to see your friends noticing, um, you know, what motivates one another and... Um, mm. I can probably do the same for you. Uh, mm. So, well, last that. evening we watched a, a fantastic film about the life of Stephen Hawking called The Theory of Everything. And it was a brilliant screenplay. But I recall multiple moments thinking of you while we watched that film because I see similarities in trying to understand the way the world works through science. And Stephen, of course, was trying to understand the way the cosmos worked through science and wrapped his head around time, which was a brilliant concept. Absolutely. I think, I think that's a nearly fair description of uh, what Stephen Hawking was doing. Yeah, science is, is you know, uh, it's, it's obviously not something tangible. <clears throat> it's something very difficult to be able to, you know, capture in, in a few words, but it's basically the the way, the framework that we have, the best framework that we have available for understanding ourselves and the world around us and beyond the universe as well. So the use of the word science in, yeah. in, in some of those contexts um, very often does perturb me, but when it comes down to it, regardless of how someone is intending to use it, it's always good to see you know general public yearning to understand and engaging with scientific materials and concepts and um, being inspired by popular media such as that film but the actual Absolutely. work of science is as something that you know i have come to realize um, through my education in, uh, in physics and maths is that you know it's very very difficult work um, very thankless work um, because of course if you think about what who scientists are people who are doing this research and people who are on the avant-garde of what we know collectively as a species so they are, you know, on the front line trying to expand the knowledge of, of all of mankind. And, you know, the rest of us, we just um, uh, uh, have our pick of the fruit that is collected by uh, these scientists through, you know, countless hours of work and um, time investment and so on. So uh, it's, always, it's always good to see, you know, a general... Um, interest um in science from from people from all walks of life and films like that they help the cause absolutely do so speaking of this uh, appreciation for learning what are you learning about now at this point in your life after we've graduated school what are you what are you wrapping your head around well as mentioned you know there is um that scientific kind of um thirst that i have that i keep 
sort of uh, feeding. But at the same time, um, in particular, I'd, I'd love to talk about um, where I've been focusing my mind, um, especially starting the corona coronavirus crisis and the lockdowns and so on. And it's really uh, brought my attention to something I have been meaning to do for a long time. Uh, and it's a very cliche thing, but um, I think the core of it is very valid regardless. And it's, uh, to encapsulate it, being able to sort of find beauty and, and joy in very mundane and or remedial tasks um, that we do um, every day of our lives. And uh, basically it's about finding um, a different emotion that you can connect with a very mundane or uh, regular sort of um, uh, moments in your day. Um, it's something, of course, you know, uh, very famous people have talked about the fact that they, they continue to learn even on their deathbed, you know, um, Enrico Fermi, I think, famously said something about that. Um, so if, if, you know, these great minds, uh, their learning and their thirst to learn doesn't diminish even, even at that, you know, late stage in their lives, then, you know, it just bears witness to how sort of strong that curiosity is. And um, for the minute, I'm, I'm using it, I'm, I'm focusing it onto being able to um, be at a, uh, a point in my life where I am completely in, in control of, of that feeling. And I'm, uh, as I mentioned, right now I'm using it to uh, find meaning and beauty in, in regular day-to-day -day things. And it's been, it's been, you know, up and down, of course. It's very difficult um, to do something like that. But at the same time, luckily... As human beings, we have, you know, uh, we behold sort of unlimited capacity for learning. And um, that's what I'm trying to tap into. Oh, I, I appreciate that very much. Thank you for bringing that to light. I, I imagine that your struggle is quite difficult because you live in a city where the coronavirus has, you know, gripped it so tightly. And it's forced you to retreat your lifestyle. And now you're having to maybe recognize the things that previously went unnoticed because, you know, they were small or they were mundane. So tell me about what are some of the places where you are finding beauty nowadays? Absolutely. It really comes down to the realization or the, perhaps you can, you can go into this sort of state with, with maximal practice, but it comes from the ability to basically have maximal control over your mind and your thoughts. And, and the more control you have over your mind and your thoughts, that can lead you to being able to control your emotions. And, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the golden sort of gauntlet that everyone is aiming for. So even when I'm, you know, just out and about on a standard walk uh, in the park or if I'm working in my uh, little plot of garden, just noticing as many things as I can and um, very sort of applying creativity where you wouldn't normally apply it. So if I'm, you know, uh, working in the garden with a spade or something and I unearth, uh, let's say, what did I see yesterday? 
a little termite colony. And now, because of the external circumstances that you mentioned, now I've got the time to, you know, be uh, and the luxury really to be able to say, okay, I'm going to stop for a moment and 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 see what's going on here and take a moment to engage with something I wouldn't normally engage with. And it's very rewarding uh, when you get it right. That is magnificent. That is just incredible. Thank you for bringing that to my attention to slow down. I'm in such a busy season of my life with the publishing of the various books and the construction of the podcast and the finishing of the the plays we're writing. So it's very full. And I look forward to what is going to come into my life when I have more space and time come the last quarter of this year. So my last question for you today is about inspiration. So who has inspired you the most and what qualities do they have that you admire? Of course. And again, I'm, I'm sorry to keep going on about the science, the science theme, but my role model or the hero that I've chosen to mention here is Dr. Sean Carroll. And he is the head of physics at Caltech, California Institute for Technology. And incidentally, he sits at the same desk that Richard Feynman used to sit at. So, I mean, one of the most eminent physics institutes in the world. And, uh, you know, he's, he's a head there. And not, not only is he, you know, a professor and a, um, an author, he's, he's written a few books, but he's also a popular sort of communicator of science. Um, obviously, uh, since you perhaps haven't heard of him, he hasn't reached the same, uh, the same heights as, uh, uh, say Neil deGrasse Tyson or someone mm-hmm. like that. But at the same time, I think you have to appreciate uh, the kind of science that he's trying to he's trying to communicate and sort of informally teach people um, all over the world, um, because he's a uh, theoretical particle physicist, and as such, the mm, material that, that he has got to share um, may not have the widest appeal. Um, but at the same time, what I've found, given my sort of uh, light background in science, is that for me. Um, uh, he was someone who really revived uh, my love um, for science and really um, he's able to take these these amazingly complex concepts that take, you know, decades of study to be able to grasp intuitively and he's able to present them in such a way that, you know, given a little bit of prior scientific knowledge, um, you know, you can grasp or you can at least... Uh, come to appreciate some of these concepts which which uh, I previously you know um, wouldn't have been able to predict that you know I'd be in a position to be uh, able to talk about them when or even explain them to some some other people and it was all thanks to uh, the um, the calm collected and measured manner in which uh, Sean Carroll has been uh, doing his work he's got a brilliant podcast called uh, mindscape that i'm a regular listener of and he has brilliant people um, eminent physicists uh, chemists uh, computer science uh, researchers and so on and uh, he engages them in very uh, deep meaningful uh, discussion and he's not afraid to get in the weeds as well um, because he recognizes the audience that he's speaking to um, so um, uh, and again, I think 
uh, role models or, or or people that we admire. That uh, it's a sort of a catch twenty two. Of course, um, it's a, it's a difficult task, or at least it should be a difficult task to be selecting you know people that you want to emulate or people that you look up to. Um, because of course, um, uh, first is you know selection bias. The reason why I'm talking about physicists is because it's you know the thing I probably care about more more than uh, most other things. But if you look around, um, and if you you know um, uh, look at uh, the kinds of people who are coming to who come into uh, you know popular acclaim or into the limelight, people who are presented to the youth as as you know uh, uh, people worthy of emulating. Um, I think I think uh, there's 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 a few issues there, um, and it has to do with how you know we as a we as a society we judge you know people's value and worth, and how much attention we should pay to them. Um, so it's a bit of a troubling situation, um, obviously with the proliferation of social media and and um, people being able to directly talk to and reach out to their heroes. Um, so that's also something worth, worth exploring sometime. Well, we don't have much more time on the show today, but that's not to pass over the foundation you just laid for me to speak a second on the power of communication. I think that it's brilliant you've chosen to highlight an individual who has the skill set of making complex ideas approachable because we need to give those teachers more recognition i think as a society we should maybe shift some of our spotlight away from the up and coming artists and focus more of it on the hard-working scientists. And I really appreciate you bringing this perspective to my podcast, which is so culturally entrenched and bringing uh, more, you know, just a scientific lens to it. I I appreciate that. Thank you so much for your time today and for speaking to science. You've been brilliant on the show and I am glad that we were able to communicate. Thank you. Of course, Trevor. Thank you very much for having me. Um, uh, I'm I'm very pleased to hear you hear you talk about science as well. And it's it's you know it's our future. So thank you so much for listening to my perspective on that. So cheers. Great. Cheers. Thank you. In today's pennies and pounds, I have a couple thoughts for us. In pennies, in the digital age, wealth originates from information and knowledge. And of course, timing. However, we also have to be wary of the threats on our funds. There are more traps to slip into nowadays than there used to be. Heed the advice from the richest man in Babylon. 
Gold slippeth away from the man who invests in purposes for which he is not familiar, or tries to force it to impossible earnings, following the allure of schemers. I think about this now as I'm, you know, deciding about what my portfolio will look like with cryptocurrency. It sure is a lot to wrap that around. And I'm heeding that advice and just taking a small portion of my nest egg, you could say, and allowing it to be in the more risky area of things because of the high potential. But I do look at this and think about this. Gold slippeth away. And I must make sure that it's not something I would not miss, per se. Let's move on to pounds. In the pounds section, I'd like to bring our attention to mind projections or mantras and their ability to help direct the awareness. For example, just tune into how you feel after hearing this statement. We are not in a rush. We are waiting patiently for the results. Or, we manifest possibility through proactive action. Both of them bring about a sense of calm or completion, right? Well, what are some mantras that you can bring to your life to help your mind do what it needs to do? Interesting thoughts today. And for sticking with me to the end, I actually have looked through my files and found a bonus recording that I'm going to share with you a little more pennies and pounds segment. Here we go. In today's segment on pennies and pounds, I'd like to bring to our attention that in pennies, everything worthwhile is excruciatingly hard. We must take a look at the bigger picture in order to pull ourselves out of the pressure of the moment. For example, we can do this with a simple question such as, in 10 years, 5 years, 3 years even, will I regret not doing this? I think looking at this, what should I do with my life, perspective from the end of life, from a point of view of regretting, not doing something can help give us clarity because hindsight 2020 we try to jump forward to that moment where we can see what it would be like without this in our life so give yourself permission to try because from what we get we can make a living but from what we give however makes a life arthur ash says and today's pounds. Over the next week, I invite you to bring more mindfulness to what you put into your body. Every single day, we can make positive progress towards our greater health, as long as we try to connect to what we're putting on our plate and in our glass. And with our guilty pleasures of coffee, chocolate, and wine, let's just try to take a slight step back from them. Well, my friends, my family, my early listeners, we have made it to the end. 
We've made it to the end of the episode. We've made it to the end of the season. And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. If you have listened to me, even one episode. If you've listened to all, then you are a super user and I need to know about you. Email me, please. Muse at Trevor'sThoughts.com. That's like the Greek muses. Or you can email Trevor at Trevor'sThoughts.com. I want to hear from you. I want to hear your input. I want to hear your feedback. That being said, the plan is, because of the immense amount of work that goes into producing the podcast, to launch once again September 9th. I'm going to take a hiatus. I'm going to recoup. I'm going to regroup. I'm going to rewrite. And I'm going to come out with the second season better than the first. So thank you for joining me. And I look forward to seeing you then. If you would like a reminder, please go to my website, treversthoughts.com, and sign up for the newsletter. That's probably the easiest way to stay in touch and to get the notification when the time is right for the next season. Alternatively, instead of going to the website, you can email me, muse, like the Greek muses, at treversthoughts.com, and I'll put you on the list. That way we can stay in touch and you'll be notified so you don't have to remember. Nine nine. See you then.